Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Record Rangers podcast with me, Johnny McFarlane. Joining me this week is, as usual, Mr. Scott McDermott and replacing Gavin Berry, who's gone back to his submarine to work on his uh, connection, uh, <laughs> is Mr. Andy Newport. Andy, are you there? I am. Thanks for having me on again. No, delighted to have you on, mate. And today we're going to be talking about a number of issues there may not be any football, but it really means that there's nothing to talk about here in Scotland, and especially about Rangers. We're going to get Scott to talk us through his exclusive on Sunday regarding two potential Rangers signings. We're going to ask if the latest uh, situation with the SPFL and Hearts leads uh, and a person who really analyses it to think that perhaps the league finished a little too early. And we're going to start a new series of discussions on the podcast where we look back on one player. And today's player is Michael Malls. So, Scott, we're going to start off with your story from Sunday in the paper regarding two young players coming into the club We've got Tony Weston from Blackpool and James Graham from Ross County. How far down the line are these deals and what do you expect from them as players? Uh, I think they're pretty far down the line, Johnny. I mean, listen, it's two young players, both 16-year-olds. So, I mean, no, these kids are only going to come in, uh, certainly initially, and trouble the, trouble the first team. But, I mean, I think it's an indication of... <clears throat> Kind of where Rangers are in terms of uh, no their recruitment, in terms of what their kind of new philosophy, new approach might be. Obviously, Ross Wilson coming in is playing a huge part in that. Um, they're targeting some of the best young players around the UK, trying to get them into Rangers. They've obviously got Calvin Bassey as well from Leicester, who's, who will obviously be a lot closer to the to the first team. Um, but I mean, Tony Weston at Blackpool. I mean, the deal's not done yet, but Rangers certainly want them. Uh, they've seen an opportunity um, to go and get a boy who, you know, at 16, uh, managed to get into the Blackpool first team after scoring a lot of goals in the reserves. Um, he's a Liverpool, uh, Liverpool lad. Um, I believe he signed up to the, the same agency as, as Steven Gerrard, and I think that's why Gerrard will take a... Um, I can have personal interest in this one, try and use his influence to to get it done. Um, the boy hasn't signed a professional contract with Blackpool because you can't do that until you're 17 in England. Um, but in Scotland, it's 16. So Rangers have seen a wee window of opportunity. They've watched the boy, uh, liked what they've seen, uh, and they're going to try and get him in the get him in the door. And you, no, you need to think if he's. If he's played in the first team at Blackpool, um, no, I know the manager, the previous manager down there, Simon Grayson, uh, really rated the boy highly. So you'd like to think he would come in at Rangers and 
no, he would go straight into their kind of reserve uh, team and kind of take it from there. Uh, the other boy, uh, James Graham, is similar. I mean, that's been mooted now for a few weeks, but um, apparently, you no know, clubs all over Britain have been trying to get this boy from Ross County, Man United, Celtic, others have all been have all been mentioned. Um, but I think from what I've heard, he's a Rangers supporter. Rangers have watched him again, liked what they've seen, uh, and are trying to get that deal done as well. It will cost him a wee bit. Of, uh, I think it will cost him a small amount in, in compensation. But another striker uh, to come into their kind of youth ranks. And as I said at the start, I just think it's. It shows how Rangers are progressing uh, in terms of the recruitment side. They want to be sniffing around the best young players in the country to get them in. Whether that's a, an indictment on you know, some of the younger players that are there already, I'm not sure. But I, I, I just think Stephen Gerrard and Ross Wilson um, together... Um, will want to be seen to be attracting the, the kind of best young players that they can get and bringing them into the, the system. And if they can get these two, uh, these two forward players in, I think they'll be delighted because there's a lot of there's a lot of interest in them. Is this yet more evidence of Rangers really working hard to build a structure behind the scenes for the future? That there's no longer this relentless focus just on the first team. The club is building from the bottom up, real foundations. Yeah, it seems to be. I mean, it seems to be only a few years ago that, um, like so when Alan McLeish was in charge of the club, he was complaining about not having a, a scouting network. Now the, the team led by Scott Wilson building, um, a sort of casting their net far and wide for not just guys that are ready to come in and challenge Stephen Gerrard's first team, but guys that can be sort of nurtured into players of the future that can perhaps be, you know, guys that can, you know, make make, make themselves first team figures or, or perhaps be sold on for a, for a profit. Um, I think there was a study last last month, I think it was, that um, revealed that Rangers uh, sat bottom of the, the, the Premiership clubs in terms of minutes given to, to sort of youth players. And I suppose that's one of the things that you could sort of point at Stephen Gerrard over his, his time at the club is that there hasn't been all that much sort of focus on youth development obviously with the, the requirement to sort of put a halt to, to Celtic's sort of era domination it's, it's not a time blooding too many youngsters into your first team um, but it does seem that you know with the, the sort of developments that are going on behind the scenes with, with, with Ross Wilson's arrival last year that um, this is a, a new development that they're looking to sort of push through and make sure they've got the next generation of youngsters coming on that, that's the thing, Johnny. It, that's the thing. It's, this season is so important to Rangers at first team level. As everybody knows, it's going to be intense, high pressure, trying to stop the 10 in a row. I mean, speak to fans and you know, this season more than ever, it will all be about the here and now. But Rangers as a club can't operate like that. As Andy touched on for too long, um, that's been the case. You no, know, it's been quick fixes. Um, and no, Rangers can't can't work like that anymore. We, we've discussed it uh, enough on here um, about what has to be done, kind of behind the scenes to kind of set Rangers up for the future. And Andy's right; it's doesn't seem that long ago that no, this kind kind of approach. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, but when Alan McCoyce was there, and the, you know, the financial problems hit. No, if they could have put no 
any money they had into a bit of scouting or a bit of recruitment. They could have went and got younger players and no the club might have been in a different position a few years later. They didn't they went down a different road and obviously it didn't it didn't work for them certainly initially. But I think now as much as Gerard and Ross Wilson will know obviously the importance of this season it's about a much bigger picture for them in terms of Rangers as a club and they want to get back to attracting the best young players, safeguarding the club's future and you know, most importantly to sign players who in a couple of years' time will have could have real sell on value for the for the club and as we all know that's that's what it's all about now for uh, for clubs in Scotland especially. How difficult must this be for, for Ross Wilson and Steven Gerrard at the moment? There's still several leagues that are continuing in Europe. They don't have an open transfer window, as it were. They don't know what the finances necessarily are going to be, the full impact of those shut stadiums and how the coronavirus is going to wreak havoc on, on the entire football world. It must be exceptionally difficult for them to look at this and say, right, this is how I want to build my team. This is how I'm going... To, to do this, this plays into the idea of Scotland being one of the few that actually hasn't shut down and then reopened. We've shut down full stop because it, it leaves us on a sort of slightly different plateau from everyone else in terms of building the team. Yeah, I mean, as a phrase that's been used many times over the last three months, this is a, a totally unprecedented situation. But I suppose that the good thing about having so much time, uh, spare time over the last the last few we while is that they will have had time to, you know, drop lists, identify players that they, they, they think they can come in and strengthen the team. Uh, now it's just a case of sort of you know maybe a bit of a waiting game they have to wait for to see how moves and pieces get shuffled around um, across the rest of Europe. You often see later stages of a of a transfer window. That's when it heats up when basically teams start making their moves and it's the sort of dominoes falling that allow teams to then pick up the players that they're looking for. Um, but, I mean, I would, as always, with these guys, um, like Sir Ross Wilson and your, your sort of directors of football, they'll have not just one list of targets, they'll have several lists and if, if they don't have, um, if, if one target, if one you know priority signing falls through, then they'll have guys sort of numbered behind that and they'll just have to work their way through the list. Um, I see there's been suggestions the last few weeks about how many players Rangers uh, were willing to sign. I think you guys discussed it in the pod last week with Ian Durant saying five or six. I, mean, I think that would be round about the figure they'll be looking for. But I think it's it's definitely quality rather than quantity. And if they can't get the guys that they're looking for, then you know they'll just have to wait and see what happens further further on down the line. Obviously, there's talk about it being a sort of prolonged transfer window as well. So um, I don't think you'll be expecting to see too many arrivals too soon. Uh, as much as Stephen Jarrod would probably like that now that obviously the team are back back in pre-season training. Scott, does the idea of snapping up free transfer players become even more appealing, especially if they've got a bit of quality about them. I look at this guy that's been linked, Renato Tapia, Peruvian international, 24, been playing at Feyenoord, international experience, obviously, with 53 caps. Um, he's played in the Europa League, played in the Champions League. Now, I'm not saying that Rangers are going to assign him. It's just one of these uh, these links that keeps on coming back yeah. and coming back. 
But <clears throat> I suppose the question would be, is that the kind of move that, that makes sense in this scenario where you can get someone who has clear a clear CV that even if it doesn't work out, you know you can move them on and there's no big transfer fee involved, despite yeah. the fact presumably there would be reasonable wages for a player like that? Of course it is. I mean, listen, even in normal circumstances, clubs at Rangers need to try and find... Uh, no loopholes for want of a better expression, or no that that window of opportunity that I'm speaking about um, to try and get players in uh, cheaply. Obviously, they've got to have quality. I agree with Andy. I think Rangers will be more about quality uh, rather than quantity this summer. Um, but you're right, picking up guys like that would 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 seem to be no great business. It's a bit like the no Rangers doing the cross border transfers as well that we've spoken about on here obviously they've got Calvin Bassey now they get Joe Aribo before that no these are the type of opportunities that you've really got to be on the ball with and to be fair to Rangers and Ross Wilson it looks as if they are um, and even I mean I'm reading this morning about uh, no Hibs Hibs are obviously going through a bit of financial difficulty due to the the pandemic and you know, they are, it looks as if they are now kind of discussing uh, wage cuts with players and you know, I think you'll find some players leaving Hibs I know people have spoke about Camberry uh, maybe getting him on the cheap but I just think in general because of this crisis there will be opportunities out there to go and get players that you, know, you might not have been able to get or you might be able to get a bit cheaper um, cheaper than normal because of the because of the situation because of their contracts and stuff. So Rangers do need to bond, bond the ball with that. Obviously, it's a massive season as as we've spoke about. It has to be the right players, obviously. But I definitely think there are we uh, we opportunities there to go and go and get guys, and they, they might not cost you the cost you the earth. Yeah, I think the the fee that's being mooted for Canberra, Andy, kind of tells you a little bit about where the transfer market is going. Now, I think at one stage, Hibs would have been looking for about, you know, £1.52 million for this guy, because certainly when he first came, he was he was absolutely terrific. And I know he went off the boil a little bit, but he showed in his short spell at Rangers that he's still a player who has a fair bit of quality around him. And at 150000 that seems like somebody is going to be able to snap up a real bargain. But, but do you think that is a, bar- a barometer of where this market is going to go now in terms of fees? We've talked about um, Lewis Ferguson being perhaps a £5 million player on this podcast, or, or certainly Aberdeen looking for £5 million for, for Lewis Ferguson. Is it a case that someone like that might might be uh, see his fee diminished by a factor of maybe one-third th- one or two-thirds because of this situation? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I don't think football clubs are immune from the difficulties that the general economy are facing. Um, and if you've seen some of the figures this week, something like talking about the you know, reductions in the, the finances of the, the nation, something like 20, 25%. So I think you're going to see knock-on effects like this. Um, I think you'll see players especially struggling to, to attract the kind of offers that they perhaps might have been looking for only a few months ago. Um, clubs are going to be finding it increasingly difficult to to make the kind of hefty sort of pay packets put put them together that they might have done uh, in times gone by. So players are going to have to accept lesser lesser fees uh, when it comes to, to salaries um, and as well transfers. You know, clubs that are 
perhaps bearing the brunt of the, the, the sort of economic downturn that's been caused by this COVID, COVID crisis. Um, they're going to, they might just be looking for quick sales rather than, you know, looking for cash up front rather than, than perhaps, you know, these sort of staggered payments that seem to be uh, the fashion nowadays. So there is opportunities there for clubs like Rangers to, to pick up sort of bargain buys. But the, the trouble is that every club nowadays is, is out looking to save money. You're talking about, you know, recruiting young players. All clubs, uh, if they've got the resources, are studying the, the youth markets and are studying the sort of out-of-contract list and, and trying to see where they can get players in uh, and save some money. Uh, but Rangers, as long as they have done their homework and, and they're prepared to move as quick as they can, uh, then they'll be hopeful they can get ahead of the queue. Right, well, we're going to move on now to... Um this year we've almost slightly touched upon there the, the the fact that the league has been ended we've obviously gone through this in, in incredible detail but I was just sitting there thinking um, yesterday about the fact we've got the Premier League back this week La Liga's back we've got Serie A back and of course Germany came back a couple of weeks ago and there seems to be fingers crossed uh, a feeling that coronavirus, um, we've got over certainly the first serious hump and that we seem to be getting back to some kind of normality. Now, I understand that there was a really difficult decision in front of the SPFL and they don't have any of the certainties that, that we might be moving towards having now. And it's very easy in hindsight. However, Given the outpouring of um, consternation about Hearts uh, having their relegation finalised yesterday when reconstruction didn't follow through, Scott, do you think this now makes it look even more strange that that they were so quick to move to end that league? I, I, I think it would be slightly um, remiss of me not to say that, pretend that I... I, I, I I, I, don't, I didn't feel that it was a possibility or that it was a reasonable scenario that they could end the league. But I think we were always committed to the fact that it was it was, it was was very hastily done. Do yeah. you think anything's happened since that, that, that would change that viewpoint? Well, Johnny, we were all committed at the time to playing out the rest of the season, if at all possible. Now, that was difficult to predict then of course it, it didn't look good <clears throat> didn't look possible at the time um, because of the you know, when the pandemic really hit however I think you're right I, no, I was the same yesterday um, when it was kind of unfolding no, I did ask myself no, why was there why was there this rush why no, and I know Rangers themselves have asked this question but um why at the time just no no give yourself that bit of, bit of breathing space and just see how it see how it developed um, and I know people will say no Scott no you're talking about the Premier League and Serie A and stuff people say it's different Scottish football you know, in terms of the finances to get the game going again but I mean here we are now players are back training uh, certainly Rangers Celtic. Um, Ross County, uh, to name but three, have all got the uh, the testing capabilities for their players to come back. Um, I'm hearing stuff, uh, no, about the SFA have bought the machines. There could be a kind of central hub for players at other clubs to go and get tested. Just stuff like that. 
has now is now coming about, and you do need to ask yourself: No, could we have could we have finished this season? Could we have managed to squeeze in the last uh, the last section of games if we'd have just given ourselves a bit more time? Um, and that will be a question for the for the SPFL themselves to uh, to ask. I mean, me personally. No, I, I do think it was a it was a rush. It was hastily agreed, and we're saying hastily agreed. I mean, without going over it again. It, no, it wasn't really agreed initially. Initially, the clubs voted against it until until Dundee changed their their famous uh, casting vote. So that's how kind of tight it was. But I, I, I'm with you. I, I tend to think no, albeit with hindsight. It would have been better for the league to take a take a step back, take their time with it, and there might have actually been a possibility of of playing out this season and avoiding the absolute carnage that that came about after that. Andy, one of the big arguments used is about finances. Scott's touched on it there. Here's some leagues that are already set to go back or have gone back: Albania, Bosnia, Austria, Bulgaria, Estonia. Does that blow that argument out of the water? I think it, it does to an extent. I mean, I can see some of the driving factors about why they, they, they took the decision, obviously. I mean, we're sitting here on, on June the 16th. Um, the clubs were only given permission to resume training uh, five days ago. But if you, uh, obviously the, the situation up here has been slightly different than down south um, in terms of things like the R rate and, and how the disease has, has been managed and it has spread um, through the different regions. But I think you're right. If there was a will to get it done, um, it doesn't really seem that it's, it's transpired that way. And just in terms of the, all the, the sort of acrimony and the anger and the fallout that's, that's come about calling the season and you know you see the sort of statements from you know heart setting well now going ahead with legal trouble you know Partick Thistle you know coming out with some some strong words I think it was is it a bit shocking or something they described it as um, yesterday uh, the, the fate that's sort of befallen them I mean it just seems that as usual Scottish football is, is instead of finding a way to, to unite itself it's it's found a way to sort of claw itself apart again and you know now there's going to be a lot of anger and distrust among you know member clubs going forward and how, how does that then knock on to attempts to you know you know to improve the game in, in the sort of months and years to come you know if clubs are at loggerheads and full of uh, you know they, they don't have the trust and respect that they perhaps once should have you just think had they might found a way to get the season complete on the football field and let it be played out and you know, for want of a better word, a sporting fashion, then you know, we could have sort of avoided all this sort of mess and you know, things might look a wee bit more positive uh, in terms of how we, we cope with the, the sort of challenges that are still to come. What, what's, what's annoyed me, Johnny, about the, the SPFL regarding this has been, and I think somebody mentioned it yesterday in the, on the radio, in terms of being proactive and actually pushing something you know, and driving something, no, the SPFL were really behind that. You no, know, ending the season, they they were lobbying people and they were you no know, putting it out there that this was the right thing to do. You no, know, in terms of actually actually leading the game, that's the one thing that they really pushed for was to was to get this quick 
end to the season. And during that period, all I heard from the SPFL was we need to end it now because we need to get on with you know, solving the problems of Scottish football and getting the game back you know, on an even keel and recovering for this pandemic. As far as I can see, once that once they got that decision through the end of the season, what have they driven since that? What have they pushed since that? What plans have the SPFL as a body put in place to get the game back up and running? As far as I can see, absolutely nothing. They've now went back to the you know, this kind of stance of, well, listen, it's up to the clubs to decide what they want to do. It's up to the clubs to, to push through what they want. No, giving Hearts the chance to put forward a reconstruction plan or whoever it might be. I mean, I think that's what will really annoy not just Rangers fans, but fans of a lot of clubs, is that no, they were so behind the the quick ending of the season and no made promises that they had to do this because they had to get on with, with sorting out the game. And as far as I can see, once once they got it sorted, they've done absolutely nothing since to, to get Scottish football back back moving again properly, um, and you no, know, they've just left it up to other people to put put proposals in place or put plans in place, um, and I think that just highlights again that you no, know, it, it was a it was a botched process um, and very very hasty uh, as we as we can now see. Perhaps what we need is a root and branch independent investigation into the governance of Scottish football. Yeah. <laughs> if, only, if only somebody would propose that. Um, Andy, I mean, in terms of getting the game back started again, do you have any concerns or doubts? I, I noticed that the... And I, obviously, I know that you're not an epidemiologist. <laughs> um, but I noticed that J- Professor Jason Leach was saying that you could draw a second line underneath that date of August 1st. It does seem like we're getting to a situation with players back training that that, that does now seem more realistic than it has been perhaps about two weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, the thing, I mean, just going back to like, you obviously talked about the the rush to to finish the the season, uh, the season just gone. The thing that surprises me is that Everyone's thought was so determined to get last season finished. Nobody's really spoken about what next season is going to be about, and there's every possibility that you're going to end up with a second lockdown, a second spike in this virus that will also then have an awful effect in, in the football calendar. And, you know, I'd be surprised if if we see the season starting on August the first and managing to go through all the way through to the sort of you know targeted end date mid-May next year without having any more COVID disruptions. All the suggestions from the experts seem to be that this thing, as much as what we're managing it um, quite well at the moment, is that you know perhaps when winter comes, that you you will have uh, see a sort of resurgence of it, and you know that could obviously have you know big problems for for Scottish football, especially the sort of winter period, which is you know normally one of the sort of you know, the, the busier schedules around December time. You, you, you that's always when you see maybe eight nine league fights are squeezed into one month. Um, so yet to say whether or not we're going to have a, a January shutdown. Um, but I mean, I would just be I would be utterly amazed if, if we don't see next season, you know, affected in, in some way by this this COVID crisis. Yeah, there's absolutely still so many questions uh, to answer on this. Scott, one of the big talking points yesterday, uh, as I've touched on, was Hearts reconstruction bid falling apart. Uh, now, I mean. In terms of 
who was actually in charge of the, the final <laughs> the final proposal, I suppose, is, is moot because that Anne Bunch, I think her initial preferred option was 14-14-14. Yeah. And then it was clear that wasn't going to get support, so it moved to 14-10-10. So in terms of this going forwards, we, we've had an, a lot of acrimony about the decision to end the season, obviously. Park Thistle fans, Hearts fans, Rangers fans, very upset, Sonar fans as well. Um, and I think a number of other fans in general look at it and say there's been some errors made, at least in terms of the way this was administrated, with the likes of the Dundee vote and things like that. Um, now you've got Hearts fans really adopting this bunker mentality over this situation, uh, almost to an extent that reminds me a little bit of uh, to a lesser extent, but but in some way of, of 2012, you know, where yeah. the fans come together as one because they see an injustice that, that they yeah. feel has been uh, applied to their club. With that in mind, do you see parallels there for Hearts going forwards, uh, given the situation that's, that's that's happened to them? Because I think any right-minded person can see that, that what has occurred is really, really unfair. And not just because they've been relegated, but this is the most uh, difficult and devastating relegation in the history of Scottish football, given they're going into a 27-game season next year in the Championship yeah. that will be held behind closed doors for at least a, a chunk of it. So, I mean, heart, hearts are really being put in a, a horrific situation. Yeah, well, in terms of 2012, Johnny, there are parallels. Of course, the circumstances are totally different. No, Rangers kind of financial implosion was their own was their own doing but no you do laugh at times when you hear no people within Scottish football saying no the clubs need to rally round we need to support no we're fellow clubs we're fellow SPFL members no we need to stick together um, I mean I don't remember much of that when the when Rangers were going down um, no Rangers were getting we're going out of business, basically. I don't remember clubs rallying around them, no, to try and try and help or try to save. Obviously, one of the country's biggest clubs. Um, so I think there's a parallel there in terms of the kind of acrimony. I mean, I'm sure you'll have heard that. I heard Craig Levine yesterday on the, the radio, <clears throat> no, effectively suggesting that no such was a bad feeling. No, he was speaking to Donald Finlay that such was a bad feeling. No cow and beef. Might not get any loan players off of, off of Hearts now, which I thought no was an incredible statement to make because uh, I mean Cowdenbeath have actually had a really good relationship with Hearts for many years in terms of loan players. So to think that no the bad blood is such that it would uh, it would result in something like that no really did make you think about how how this is all going to pan out. Obviously Hearts are now threatening to go to court. So it's going to rumble on. You know, you're hearing stuff like uh, you know, a possible interdict to, to stop the season actually actually starting. So, I mean, if anybody thinks this is the end of it, uh, then they can they can think again. Um, but you do you do feel for Hearts and you know, Partick Thistle said it in their statement as well. I think the last line of their statement was, "We will not forget." And I think that was aimed at clubs who had actually supported them and offered sympathy but I'm sure it'll work the other way um, for the clubs that haven't backed them and haven't supported them in this um, or haven't tried to save them from a 
a completely unfair relegation, even more unfair than than Hearts. Um, so I think this, you know, what's happened as a result ultimately of of that SPFL vote that we talk about, um, the kind of ramifications are going to be are going to be far reaching uh, and, and long lasting in, in terms of Scottish football. Andy, do you, Andy, do you ascribe to that as well? Do you think that ultimately we're going to be in for a long-haul situation where it's going to be difficult to reach consensus for all clubs, even more than it already is now? Yeah, I mean, as Scotty says, I mean, it just seems that there's a lot of bitterness abounding right now. You know, clubs, the cry for unity has, you know, came sort of quite loudly and firmly uh, when this you know, crisis all kicked off, but there's been very little of that, and I can understand it. In the day, clubs, you know, this argument, you know, we need to to vote for the betterment of Scottish football. Well, that doesn't really wash if if your clubs, you know, in danger of you know losing out significant sums uh, of money, especially when when the future economy is, is so uncertain. But you know, it just seems that you know, right now, clubs are entrenched in their positions. There's not much hope of you know seeing the bigger picture and until we can sort of maybe may only be once we get out of this we've, we've left this sort of coronavirus crisis in the, in the rear view mirror that, that clubs can then get a bit of perspective and, and start looking to, towards looking to um, you know the betterment of Scottish football Scott uh, Andy touches on the betterment of Scottish football there and this is one of the things that frustrates me because if you speak to anyone who's been involved in the SPFL they always say that that's almost impossible because the competing interests of the different clubs are so different. Yeah. Now, you look at Celtic and then you compare them with, say, Cowden Beef. They have two completely different ideologies, two different uh, sizes of fan base. The interests of those two clubs, almost it's almost impossible for them to align. So yeah. how, how do you get a structure that, that actually fits and allows Scottish football to change? Because at the moment, it seems that we are stuck in a stasis of this 12-10-10-10. Everyone knows it's not perfect, but it's the best worst scenario that we can have. And so you can't actually, you can't actually change it. Now, here's my proposal to you. Why don't we, as we know that this doesn't work or it's not working for everyone, why don't we go to an NBA-style model where we appoint a commissioner? Someone comes in, they have carte blanche to do what they want. Now, obviously, the SPFL would have the control over who they hire. So yeah. in terms of the pitch, they have carte blanche over what they do. And then after three years, you extend the contract or you don't. You're either happy yeah. with what they do or you're not. But this situation where everyone has a stake in the pie, it's yeah. really not working. No, because... Johnny, we've, we've spoken about this for for years. That that is the argument. I mean, you, it, it, it's the argument about you no know, never getting anything done by by committee. I mean, that that's what Scottish football is. It just looks like a you know, it looks like an old man's bowling club run by you no know, run by the committee, and you no know, they can never get anything done because of squabbles and arguments and self interest or whatever. And no, you're right. The argument against that is you need to put somebody in charge. I mean, Donald Finlay, to be fair to him, said that yesterday. No, to get anything done, you need somebody leading it, somebody with the uh, the authority to make changes. Of course, the clubs would need to interview and appoint that person. Um, and listen, it might be somebody like... Uh, it might be another Neil Doncaster, but the difference is 
So Neil Doncaster doesn't have the power to actually do anything or change anything within Scottish football. You need to give somebody that that authority, put somebody in charge. You're talking about a commissioner. I mean, people, you know, people maybe laugh, but somebody like Barry Hearn has been mentioned, uh, you know, in the past of having that kind of role. You know, I've heard them speak about Scottish football before, you know, and what he would do to change things and things he would introduce. And it did sound encouraging and refreshing. Now, I'm not saying he has to be the man, but somebody of that ilk to come in and really shake the game up and make make changes that are going to, going to improve Scottish football, uh, going to take the game on, going to modernise it. Um, and as you say, after three years, if the clubs don't think he's done a good job, then they can they can change it or um, or extend that that contract. I think now this whole episode has shown us that that probably is the the way forward for for Scottish football. But whether it'll actually happen or not is a, a completely different thing. Talking about the structure, how the game's organised, uh, Johnny. I mean, we we had a structure that would have I think would have we've dealt with a situation perhaps better only what three, four years ago when we had two separate league bodies, the SPL in charge of obviously the top flight clubs whose interests are perhaps more closer aligned than than they are with let's say you know a Celtic and a Crowd and Beef right now where they're all under one house. And then you would obviously have the SFL that was in charge of the lower league clubs. Now the fact you've got forty two clubs all under the one body, all having an equal say almost in terms of how these votes go through, it does mean that, you know, top flight clubs can be frustrated by clubs at the bottom of the league and vice versa. Whereas before when you had the SPL, the top flight clubs could vote on what was best for them and almost, you know, to hell with the rest of the league. If it was best for them, then that's what went through. But it was certainly, it gave a wee bit more clarity to the decision making than what we're seeing right now. Yeah, I was one of the guys that... um really felt that it was time to move to one body, Andy. And now I'm I'm erring towards your argument there because I felt that there's a duplication of spend. So you've got a chief executive of the SPFL, you've got mm-hmm. a chief executive of the SPL as it was, and all that money has sort of been pulled out of the game by administrators. Mm-hmm. But now when you look at it in practice, as you say, you feel that you've got teams like, say, Cowd and Beef, uh, just for for sake of argument, because we've been discussing mm-hmm. them with Donald Finlay's appearance on the BBC yesterday, who are having such an important say on the future of the, the elite game in Scottish football when they have no aspirations towards the elite game, really. Mm-hmm. And it's a really, really difficult one to, to try and put together. And I suppose that's why so many people have been involved in so many talking shops over the years trying to find a solution. It is extremely difficult. But listen, we could talk about this all day, so we're going to move on to our final segment where we look back at a Rangers legend of the past, or, or maybe not a Rangers legend, maybe a Rangers player that, that you would like us to talk about. And we will put this out on Twitter for this section. But um, it's uh, the first one, so I'm going to get to choose. And my choice is going to be Michael Malls. Um, reminded of him this week when I saw a, a Twitter video of his four goals against Motherwell in that first half of the season before he was injured. Scott, what what are your memories of Michael Moles in that spell? And for Rangers fans who are listening to this who are perhaps a little too young to remember what he was like when he first arrived at the club, can you give them an insight into just how explosive and exciting he was for Rangers fans when he arrived. Because I can't really think of another player in my lifetime who arrived at Rangers as a signing 
and almost stepped the team up to a new level on his own. Yeah, I, I think when he arrived, Johnny, as much as it was uh, for around four million pound, I mean, such was Rangers' spending power at that time. I don't think there was a big fanfare around his signing. No, he came in for Utrecht. Uh, he was quite unheralded. Unheralded. I remember Barry Ferguson saying that he had real, hadn't really ever heard of him before. Um, yeah, I, before he I came don't in. think many's. I don't think many's had Andy at the time. Um, no, he had a good goal scoring record, and no, obviously Dick Advocate spoke highly of him. But th- there wasn't a big fanfare. Um, even as I say, even though it was a no, big. Big money signing, four millions, obviously a lot, a lot of money, uh, e- even then. But when he came can I just in, stop you there, Scott, can I just stop yep. you there? There was one spread in the paper about three years earlier, and it was in the records. I think it was Hugh Keevans that wrote it at the time, but it was with Scott Booth because he'd gone to to Utrecht. Yeah, I think Mark, right. Mark Vota was his manager at the time, and it was about his spell in Holland. And at the end of it, he said, "And by the way, this strike partner I've got." It's absolutely incredible, and Rangers and Celtic should be looking at him. Exactly. That was a couple of years before. That's the only reason I knew who he was when he signed. But anyway, that was an aside. Well, cer- certainly, once he did come in, Johnny, as you touched on, mm-hmm. I mean, immediately you seen the the quality that he had uh, as an all round centre forward, um, and of course, you no, know, the Rangers fans that did. That did see him. No, you ask about Michael Moles. I think the first thing you think of is that is that famous turn that he had, um, where he would kind of take it in on one side of his body, feign to go that way, and then quickly go, go the other way, uh, and it just left you no know, many centre backs, uh, no looking really really silly, and right from the off. I mean, if I remember right, right from the off he became. A real fan's favourite. I think they seen the quality he had. I think they were excited by him, as you say. I think they felt he could take them to the next the next level. Um, but just when you think about that team, you no, know, I was thinking about it this morning. You no, know, Rangers fans now, you no, know, quite rightly, you no, know, at, at this time, get excited about you no know, European victories like you no know, you no know, beating Braga and. No, beating Mitchelland and, and, and teams like that with all due respect I mean this Rangers team that we're talking about no, we're wiping the floor with, with PSV no, we're going away from home and beating Monaco no, we're hammering Sturmgratz at home we're, we're no, home and away against Bayern Munich with no, Matthias and no, whoever else in that team and were the better team in, in both uh, both games against Bayern, and obviously the Bayern away game is, is sadly the one that kind of no epitomises Moses' time at Rangers in terms of injuries. That's when he picked up the bad knee injury at such a crucial time in in his Rangers career, uh, and also for the club in terms of where they were going the Champions League. And as much as he came back from that, no, was he ever really the same player that 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 came into that team in that first that first few months, I don't think he quite reached that 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 level again. Oh, he was miles off. the spark had gone. I mean, that that yeah. you talk you talk about that turn. The turn was never quite as sharp or yeah. as as yeah. snappy as it had been in those first was it twenty twenty odd games he had before before the injury struck him. Yeah, it's it funny you you mentioned it, Johnny that the game against Motherwell. I, I was at that game and I remember. 
come away from it. And I don't ever think I've seen an indif- individual performance as good as he was from, from a single player live in the flesh as, as Michael Moles was that day. He was, he was unstoppable. And it was obviously it was Andy Gorham's and goals for, for Mullow that day. And he, he was just, you know, everything he had to see me end up in the back of the net. And I can just, I've got a very clear picture in my, my mind's eye of, of him, you know, just dropping that shoulder and leaving, you know, defenders in his wake every time. And, and just, it was, it was quite sad to see after the injury. I mean, it was, it was quite ironic. They actually injured themselves trying to get out of the way of, of all of can when he sort of yeah. was sort of landing on top of him and you know was in, in the process of trying not to injure all of can is sustained this sort of devastating knee injury and when he did come back and he obviously had moments you know he won a, a league winner's medal with under Alex McLeish and scored a, a mm. few important old firm goals but he was never quite the same player as he was in those those first twenty odd games. I, Johnny, I think there was I think there was a similar excitement. A couple of years earlier, when when Marco Negri arrived, I mean, when Negri arrived at first, no, the, the I remember the goal against Hearts on Negri's debut where he chipped uh, Gilles Roussi and it went in off the crossbar. Then he get the the uh, the was it five was it four goals or five goals against Dundee United? At, five, at five, five, five. I mean, you did think then, wow, I mean this talking about a centre-forward, this guy was off the scale. But the difference was, no, as we've, no, everybody spoke about no, since then, at the time, that Negri, no, he was that, that sultry look about him. He didn't look as if he was quite enjoying it. No, uh, he, his work rate wasn't brilliant. The difference with Moles was that he just had this kind of vibrancy and exuberance about him that, no, that big smile across his face every time he, every time he scored. And that's why... I think the punters took to him even more than they had uh, Negri a couple of years, couple of years previous. It was such an exciting time for Rangers fans at that point because just around that motherwell, that motherwell fixture you're talking about, Johnny, there was the the game against uh, Palmer where they obviously qualified for the Champions League. I think we go to Tynecastle around that time and, and, and beat Hearts, absolutely demolish Hearts 4-0. Uh, most scores there. I think Alberts gets a couple. The, the football that they were playing, uh, they beat PSV 4-1 at home. I mean, it was a time when, you know, Rangers fans could really believe it, that their team was going to go on and do something special. Obviously, they won a treble the year before on Avocat's first season, but special on the continent and you know Scott is absolutely right that against in terms of what he says about the games against Bayern Munich I mean they went to the, the Olympic Stadium in, in Munich and you know went toe-to-toe with a, a Bayern side packed with you know German internationals Cannes you know Matthias uh, it was F, Stefan Effenberg as well and yeah. they, 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 they you know they were more than a match for you know one of the biggest teams in the world and you know, had it not been for Oliver Kahn being in some inspired form that night and, you know, some dodgy referee, I'm pretty sure there was a, a strong penalty shout and, um, and obviously some cruel up for, for Michael Moles. Rangers could have got a result that night and, and who knows where they could have gone to it after that point. Um, yeah, that's thing that, about Moles, Andy, the, 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 the kind of crying shame about the injury. I mean, as much as we're saying he didn't come back the same player for Rangers, but... I mean, what could he have become if he'd have continued mm. that that form the way he was going? I mean, Rangers would have struggled to to hold on to him. I mean, mm. no Rangers. You need to think about what Rangers could have achieved. You're right in that Champions League or in other European campaigns if they had him fully fit and flying. But in terms of him as a player, 
in his career. I know he wasn't young when he when he arrived at Rangers, but if he continued that kind of forum that he showed in Europe, particularly the the Bayern games and even more so the PSV game at home, then Rangers would have struggled to hold on him because bigger, you know, bigger clubs in the continent could have come in with, with silly money to try and try and get him. I think you have to look at it as well uh, in the context of how strong that that league was, the Champions League group. Sorry, um, yeah. a lot of people will wonder why a team full of the amount of quality the Rangers had at that time didn't qualify or didn't make more of an impact. Well, in their group, PSV were very very good at that time and dominating the Dutch league. That, that, that Van Nistelrooy up front for them as well. Van Nistelrooy, yeah. Luke Mark Van Bommel. I mean, mm. what, what a team that was. Really mm. good team. Um, was that not the Valencia, year? Val- Valencia they, got to the Champions League final yeah. that year. And they got to the Champions League final the next year. And the next Again. year, Bayern won the final. And the year after that, they were in the final. So it, it was really a tough, tough group to be drawn against Valencia and Bayern in the same group. Was, was, it not, was it was it not Bayern beat Valencia in the final in, in the San Siro? Was that is that did Valencia were beat by Real Madrid three 0 I think that season. And then the year after, the year, the after, year after, was Bayern Bayern, won. Bayern Valencia. Yeah. So it shows you that the, the real quality that they were up against. Yeah. And to be yeah. fair, Valencia were a, were a difficult matchup for the way Rangers played, and and Rangers didn't really lay a glove on Valencia. They were beaten two 0 in Spain, yeah. then two one at Ibrox, but they were a very technical side quite similar to Rangers but just a little bit better in terms of the players Mendieta at the time was absolutely sensational yeah um, D- certainly David Lo- Dave Lopez up front was that, was that the other lad yeah that's true yeah. they had Ayala at the back I think as well yeah, he was an yeah, absolute quality. killer um, but yeah Rangers certainly absolutely dominated uh, the Germans over the two games and were terrific <laughs> Um, but Michael Moles there, that was our uh, recollections of him. Uh, let us know on Twitter if you want who you want us to do next week, and we will certainly have a look back at the player's career. Okay, Scott, Andy, thanks for joining me today. We're going to call it a day, and uh, if anyone wants to continue the debate, they can on Twitter. I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. Scott's at Scott McDermott 8, and Andy is at Andy Newport PA. I've remembered it for you this time. <laughs> I'm hoping that it's right. <laughs> yeah, bang on the money for once. Cool. <laughs> if you want to give us a five star review on iTunes, that would be much appreciated as it helps us get the podcast to as many listeners as possible. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>